Okay, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 9. We're going to do it a little differently today. We're going to have some fun with this. Um, we're going to take this apart together. We're gonna, um, let's pray, and then we'll jump right on in. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can discern it by the power of your Holy Spirit. Um, and some guidance. I pray that you would help me be a, a guide through this portion of Scripture as we look at this fascinating person named Saul, his rise and his fall. I pray that you would give us insight and that you would speak right to our hearts about this man um, from your word. Tear down any preconceived ideas that we have that are not from you and um, show us what you want us to see. Um, we're willing to see anything that you reveal to us. Please guide this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, we've been going through the book of 1 Samuel on Sunday mornings. And we're to a pivotal place in the book where we are leaving a time of governance known as the judges. That was a time of God raising up leaders in times of crisis, usually how the pattern went, and it was very much a pattern. The people of God would leave God, they would, their hearts would grow cold, they would get into idolatry and, all, and um, uh, leave their fellowship with God. As a result, all sorts of horrible consequences would take place until a crisis would happen. The people would cry out to God, God would raise up a leader known as a judge, someone who would who would intercede for them, but also who would call them out, who would judge them, who would say, hey, you need to repent. You're doing this thing that's running interference between your relationship with Yahweh. You need to repent of this or put these idols away. And they would lead, and God would show up in an amazing way and show victory. People would come back to the Lord. That judge would die. And then the people's hearts would grow cold eventually, and the cycle would happen over and over again. Um, last week, Samuel was the last of these judges, and you saw a few weeks ago, if you were with us, um, in chapter 7, how he interceded for the people of Israel in such a powerful way, a lot like Moses. Um, the, in fact, the writer intentionally compares him to Moses coming out of Exodus and compares the people to the children of Israel coming out of Exodus. So there's a definite um, Exodus pattern going on here by the writer on purpose. Remember, what is, what is the Bible? It is ancient, eastern, it's not western, it's eastern, ancient, meditative literature. In other words, it's meant for you to, to bring up in your mind, and it, it's built this way. It will bring up certain ideas, concepts, storylines in your mind on repeat over and over again um, for you to think about Again, in fact, we call it um, progressive recursive literature, meaning that every time it revolves, it, it adds meat to that story or another angle to that story. It's like a snowball every time that theme comes around. So as you're reading the Bible, you will read something and you'll go, huh, that reminds me of something else I've, I've heard. That was intentional. Um, some scholars call this hyperlinks. Um, you know, when you, you can hover your mouse over something and it refers to some other place that it was said and a place where it's going. Um, that's how it works. In the Bible, if, you, if we had our old Bibles, like some of you guys do, if you hold up the Bible and you can picture in your mind themes like strings running through any, any page and you reach in and grab one of those strings, a theme like kingdom or judge or uh, justice and you pull on that string your bible just in your mind should go whoop whoop because it's usually linked to something before it and something after it it's got strings going all the way through okay so that's how we learn to read our bibles so pay attention to those types of things um, the people come to samuel and they say like let me give you an example here the people come to Samuel in chapter 8. Let me just uh, go there for you because I've got this whole thing set up for this. Look at how it starts out. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judge over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel. The second was Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. His sons did not walk in his ways but turned aside after gain or corruption. What does this remind you of? It's in the same book. Who is it? 
Eli's sons. Yes, Eli, when we first started this book, he was the priest in Israel. He had two very corrupt sons named Hophni and Phinehas, and Samuel was raised up to replace those two corrupt sons. What's happening now? Now the people come to, to Samuel and say, hey, your sons are corrupt. We want a king. And that gets us to the story of Saul. So Samuel replaced the corrupt sons of Eli. And the idea is, we're, this is coming back around. We're revolving it. Saul, the first king, is going to replace the two corrupt sons of Samuel. See what's happening here? We're coming back around again. That's a pattern. That is called recursive progressive. And that's, we're gonna add, it's going to add more meat to those bones. It's going to keep snowballing from there. Okay? Um, so, let's learn a little bit about Saul. Saul is an incredibly interesting person. The first king of Israel. Um, an amazingly complex character. Which is why I love the Bible. When, when I first started to fall in love with the Bible, the, one of the reasons I fell in love with the Bible was because of its complexity. Especially when it came to characters like Saul. Uh, you know, in, in a lot of modern movies... Um, you have a clear good guy and bad guy. Here are the heroes, here are the villains. These guys are heroic and they might have a few character flaws and they're growing through certain things, but you're rooting for them. You know they're good, where these villains are all bad. It's kind of a, a blunt instrument of, of judging. Uh, the, other movies, don't, they do a better job of this, but the Bible, this ancient literature, shows people for who they are, a very complex mixture of, of, of a person. Saul is very complex, um, as we're about to see. So we're calling this, this sermon The Rise and Fall of Saul. Um, Let's, let's, let's first start with the rise of Saul. What do we learn here um, in the first few verses um, of our introduction? There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, that's Saul's dad, the son of Abel, the son of Zeor, son of Bekorath, son of Aphiah, a Benjamite. That's important because, look, it's mentioned twice. Benjamite is here. Um, I, I thought it was mentioned twice. Yeah, Benjamin is here, Benjamite here. So look, they, he emphasizes this twice. A man of Benjamin who's a Benjamite, a prominent family. Who else was, oh, sorry. This is so, this is such a powerful program. If I even sneeze on it, it'll just give me information that I'm not necessarily asking for. There we go. Um, uh, another Saul, by the way, was a Benjamite in the New Testament. A Saul whose, whose Greek name is Paul. Maybe you know who that is. Um, wrote three quarters of the New Testament. So, and one of the things that he bragged about when he was saying, here's my pedigree, here's my resume. I am a Benjamite. I'm not just an Israelite. I'm a Benjamite from this prominent family. We, so we've got a man of prominence here. First impressions are everything. He had a son whose name was Saul. He was a handsome young man. There was not a man, a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. So he stood out. He was prominent in that he stood out. From his shoulders upwards, he was taller than any of the people. So not only was he handsome, but he had this He You knew when he was there. That's the idea. He, in a crowd, he could not be a wallflower. When Saul showed up, he was handsome. He was attractive. People wanted to be around him. And what are, where do we see him? So, well, first of all, he's rich. Um, he's handsome. His dad's a man of wealth, so he comes from a rich family. He's handsome and he's prominent. This is the first introduction to the first king of Israel, Saul, okay? And what is he out doing? He's out looking for donkeys. His dad loses his donkeys. Donkeys in those times, that was how you measured your wealth, was through your flocks, through your herds, the things that you were about. So these donkeys are very precious. They lose these donkeys. Saul tells, or excuse me, Kish tells his son Saul, go out and find these donkeys, so he takes a servant with him and they go looking, but they look at, they cannot find them. They did not find them anywhere. They passed through the land of Benjamin. They passed through the land of Shalem. They passed through the land of Shehalish. <laughs> they were here in Washington. No. They passed through everywhere. When they came to the land of Zeph, Saul said to his servant who was with them, Come, let us go back, lest my father stop caring about the donkeys. And they start, he starts getting worried about us. We've gone really far. 
We haven't been back for a long time. My dad's going to start to worry about us. But the servant says to him, hey, wait a second. There's a man of God here. This is, this is, is going to be Samuel. There's a man of God in this city. And he's a man who was held in, in honor. Um, and that, what he says comes true, meaning it doesn't, the idea is that Saul is not, or Samuel is not able just to tell the future. The idea is that Samuel is so close to the heart of God that he speaks truth that's so accurate that it's sure. That it's sure. He's not going to lie to us, even to the point where it crosses a line into the prophetic, into the future. That's how close Samuel is uh, with, with God. And he's known for this. We read about that also in chapter, uh, f- uh, chapter 4, chapter 3 rather, um, where the whole... The whole nation began to depend on Samuel because he was that close to the Lord. And he says, perhaps he can tell us, maybe he can even tell us where your donkeys are. Maybe he's so close to God that he knows where your donkeys are. And Saul said to his servant, but I don't have anything to give the guy. We have to give it, we have to pay him, right? We've got to pay him for his time. The servant answers Saul, well, here, I've got something. I've got a quarter of a shekel of silver. I'm going to give it to the man of God and tell us our way. Um... And they, Saul says, good, this is a good thing. Come, let's go. So they went into the city where the man of God was. And as they went up the hill to the, to, to the city, they met a young woman coming out to draw water. And they said, hey, is the seer here? That's what they used to call prophets with seers. They answered, he is. Behold, he just came ahead of you. Hurry, he's come now to the city. The people have a sacrifice today at the high place. When there is no temple or, or someplace, they would go to a high location. They would worship God on a hill, okay? And as soon as you enter the city, you will find them before he goes up to the high place to eat. The people are not going to eat till he comes and blesses the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. So now go up. So they say, fine. And as they come up, they're entering. They see Samuel coming towards them. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord revealed to Samuel, hey, tomorrow at this time I'm going to send you a man. Who's going to send him a man? Yeah, Yahweh. I'm going to send you a man. I'm going to tell you from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come up to me. What does that remind you of, by the way? Is that... That's a hyperlink. What was that? Exodus 2. Let's go 23. Um, during those times, the, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help, and their cries for rescue for slavery came up to God. That's, a, that's a, very intentional. And God heard their groanings, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yep, he's going to send Moses, right? And when before he sent Samuel, and now this is a reference to a new opportunity for a new Moses figure, King, King Saul. So here we are. Am I in the right place? Sorry about that. It's hard to type on this slanted um, pulpit. Okay. So, the cry, he's, uh, and so look what happens. Um, the next day, and cha- oh, let's see, go up and eat. The donkeys were lost three days. Do not set your mind on them. Samuel, or Samuel says to Saul, don't worry about your donkeys. We'll, we'll, we know where they are. And um, stay here for a while. Eat with me. You know, stay here with me. Come out. To, let's go have lunch. Let's have dinner. Um, stay the night, and then I'm going to tell you tomorrow what's on my heart. There's something really special for you. Look what he says. Um, and for whom is, is all desirable in Israel? In other words, I've got big news for you. Big things for you. I'm going to tell you something really special. And look at Saul's response. Am I not a Benjamite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? So what do we, what do we know about Saul so far? Give me, some, give me some things. I'll start out. He's rich. He's wealthy. What else? He's handsome. Yeah, he stands out. He's prominent. What else do we learn? Is he a spoiled brat? Not really. He's super humble. We got some character here in Saul. He's like, who am I? He's not expecting to be king, right? When Samuel anoints him king, Saul, you don't see Saul going, well, that's about right. 
About time someone recognized me for the great person that I am, right? He's, sh he's shocked. In fact, if we go and read it, we won't because we don't have time. But if we read when, when Samuel actually pulled him up in front of Israel to say, this is the man to be king. Where, what, do you guys remember the story? What did Saul do? He hides. He's hiding. He's so nervous. He's not sure what he's gotten himself into. One minute he's out looking for his dad's donkeys. The next minute he's being anointed king. Really interesting. Um, let's keep looking at the rise of Saul. Look at, uh, let's look at chapter 10. It gets better. Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord, has not the Lord anointed you over the people? You're going to save the you're going to save them from their enemies. And this is going to be the sign. Um, you're going to be anointed, and when you depart from me, where's the what I'm looking for? There's a great phrase in here. Um, you're going to go from here. The donkeys that you went and found, you're going to find them. Your father is going to cease to care about the donkeys, be anxious about you. Um, he's going to say, What should I do about my son? Um, and look, the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you. The Spirit of the Lord's going to rush upon you. That phrase is used, um, we're going to see that same phrase used from David. In fact, we're going to see the same pattern next week with David. Um, Saul's out looking for donkeys. What's David out doing? He's out looking for sheep, right? Samuel comes to him, anoints him with oil. He anoints... Uh, he anoints Saul with oil. In the next chapter, in chapter 13, I believe, Saul's going to have this incredible victory. This incredible victory. It's going to say, it's going to use that term again. He, in fact, well, let's just go there. Let me just show you if I can remember. Look what happens. Saul lived for one year and then became king, and then he reigned two years. Um, oh, I'm going to go back to chapter 12. Excuse me. I'm getting my battles all mixed up. Um, Samuel said to all of Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice. Um, let's go back even more. The kingdom is renewed. Oh, this is the story I'm looking for right here. It all gets jumbled in my mind. Now behold, Saul was coming in from the field. So look what happens. Um, I'm not used to the font being this big either, Irma. <laughs> Then uh, Nahash, the Ammonite, went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh-Gilead said to Nahash, Hey, make a treaty with us and we will serve you. But Nahash, the Ammonite, said to them, Okay, fine, on this condition I'll make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyeballs. They're like, really? He's like, yeah, it's like that. That's how it's going to be. And I'm going to bring disgrace on all of Israel. So the elders very wisely say, Give us seven days to think this over. Let us think about this. He says, Fine. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field um, behind the oxen. So King Saul, where, where is he? Is he reigning? Is he kinging somewhere? No, he's still out in the field. He's taking care of the oxen. Still trying to get, still trying to work his way into this whole king idea. And Saul said, what's wrong with the people? That they're weeping. Everyone's freaking out. What's going on? And they told him the news. And look, here it is. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words and his anger was greatly kindled, he took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers saying, whoever does not come and fight with me and Samuel, so it's going to be, it's going to be done to, you know, it will be done to his oxen. And the dread of the Lord fell on the people and they came out as one man. And he mustered this huge battle and he kicks the snot out of these people. Huge battle. When David's anointed, what's the next scene after David's anointed? There's a giant involved. He goes out and kills Goliath. Progressive, recursive. It comes back around again. Almost, almost the same pattern. Almost the exact same pattern. Let's look also at Saul. Let me show you this. What else about Saul? Um, so the Spirit of God is going to rush upon him. Oh, I've got low battery there, Babo. Can I get a, my battery pack? Um, look at God gave him a new heart. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave Saul a new heart. It's amazing. 
That's chapter 10, verse 9. God gave him a new heart. He's a new person. He's a new man. In New Testament language, you might say he was born again, in a sense. Oh, thank you. Um, let me switch some things around here for you. So what do we, what do we got about Saul? He's rich, he's prominent, he's handsome, he's humble, not expecting to be made king. Um, God chose him. He did, uh, uh, it's over, it's right here. The people did not choose Saul because he was handsome, rich, and prominent. God chose him, right? Yahweh chooses him. Yahweh anoints him. The Spirit of God rushes upon him. God changes his heart and gives him a new heart. God gives him this great victory and affirms his leadership in chapter 11. The Spirit of God rushes upon him in order to secure this victory in chapter 11. What are some, some conclusions? What do we know about Saul so far? Give me some, some, some conclusions. What do you think? First impressions. Here, let me start. God chose Samuel to replace the two wicked sons of Eli. So it seems that God has now chosen Saul to replace the wicked sons of Samuel. Let's start there. There's the first part of the narrative. What else? So far, so good. So far, so good. Right. So, well, I would say so far, really good. Really good. It seems like God is setting up this guy to succeed. God is not, uh, I mean, and we, we say this with some cynicism because we know the end of, we know, a lot of us know where Saul's going here. It's, it's not, there's a rise and a fall of King Saul, and it's a tremendous fall that we're going to get into in just a second. But I think, I first want to establish the fact that God chose Saul. God seems to be for Saul and giving Saul everything he needs. God chose Saul and is for Saul and has given him everything he needs to succeed, including a new heart. He's given him a new, a new uh, character, a new, a new heart. He's a changed man and he's anointed by God for a mighty task. Can we all agree with that at this point? He's a changed man, anointed by God for a mighty task. That's number one. Um, if only it stayed that way. Let's, let's, let's look at the fall. Here we go. So Saul lived for one year and then became king. And we reigned for two years over Israel. Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. So he's, he's getting himself an army going. First kind of official army um, of Israel. Before it was, you know, hey, we've got some foes. Any able-bodied person, grab your pitchforks, get your plowshares, and come out, grab a stick, and come out and beat up these, these armies, and then go back to being your family. Now, Paul is choosing 3,000 people for the task of protecting Israel, an official army. 2,000 were with Saul and Mishmash in the hill country of Bethel, so they're stationed there. And 1,000 were with Jonathan, that's Saul's son, in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan, he leads this assault on, the, on a garrison in the Philistines, and it's successful, but it incites this huge war. Look, by the way, side note, Saul's a little, we can see the first signs of Saul's insecurity. Saul, he sends out this note, there this, um, he puts on his Twitter feed, Saul has defeated the garrisons of the Philistines, not his son. Saul. So he takes credit. So a little bit of insecurity going on here. But because of this, you know, the, the idea here is, so by the way, the Philistines are by far the more advanced nation. They've got their own military. They've got chariots. They've got all of these things. Um, you know, it's the picture I get is of a little kid with a stick poking a, bee, a beehive. And maybe he swatted a few of them, but now they're mad. 
They're really mad because look what happens. The Philistines, they muster to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Mishmash to the east of Beth Haven. And when the people of Israel saw that, they were in trouble. For the people were hard-pressed. The people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs. They're cozying up with dead people and cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan River. They're like crossing the border. They're getting out of the nation. They're getting out of there. Even Saul's old, his own army, his newly minted army, is trembling in their, they're trembling in their boots. But Saul was still at Gilgal, and the people followed him trembling. So he's got an army, but they're a scared army, and rightfully so. The Philistines are mad. Jonathan stirred up this hornet's nest, so to speak. And so look what happens. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. So he sends for Samuel. Samuel says, wait seven days for me. But Samuel doesn't come. Samuel doesn't show up. So what does Saul do? Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me. And the peace offerings, and he offered the burnt offering, and as soon as he had, he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel shows up. Isn't that just the way it is? Right? When you just take matters into your own hands, then Samuel shows up. So Samuel didn't show up in time. Saul's getting nervous. Saul says, bring the burnt offering. I'll do it myself. And he, he offers this burnt offering before the Lord, and Samuel shows up. And what does Samuel say? He goes out to meet him, and Samuel says, what have you done? What have you done? And what does Saul say? Saul said, well, look at So here's what we can see with Saul. He's a little insecure. He's taking credit for someone else's battles, but now he's in a hot, a hot mess. And what does he say? When I saw what the, that the people were scattering from me, blame shifting, and that you didn't come within the days that you said. You know, Samuel said, um, what did Samuel say? A prophet is never late, Bilbo Baggins, nor is he early that arrives precisely when he means to. No, he did not say that, but when you didn't come at the time appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Mishmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So spiritualizing, magical thinking, spiritualizing things. So look at, so I forced myself I just had to do it and offer, what? Where is that? We're in chapter 13, verse 11. I forced myself, the people were scattering, and I offered a burnt offering. So what do we have? We've got blame shifting, we've got denial, magical thinking, spiritualizing, those types of things. And Samuel says, you've done foolishly. You've not, you've not kept the commandment of the Lord your God which is, uh, with which he commanded you. For the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. How are you processing this right now? Honestly. I'm looking for honesty here. Indeed, it doesn't seem fair. You think to yourself, what's the big deal? Right? Why is this such a big deal? Uh, you know, I've heard people say, well, Saul is not a priest and he's not allowed. Uh, Samuel's not a priest either, people. What's, what's going on here? <laughs> I mean, you've you, you got to let that strike your heart. What is the big deal here? Um, and here's what I want to pan, uh, pan off on you. Um, all the spiritualizing, all the denial, all the blame shifting, all of those things comes from a place, a deeper place, that Saul is not a man, is not a man after God's own heart. And here's what I mean by that. I mean trusting. I, I want to, here's what I think. I think that Saul does not trust God with his own sin. He's not after God's own heart. He doesn't trust God with his own sin. Therefore, he can't just 
come clean with it. He's got a blame shift. It's because of them over there. It's because you didn't show up on time. He's got to spiritualize. I couldn't go forward without, without doing this tradition. I had the Lord on my side. Remember the last time the nation spiritualized? They took the ark out like a four-leaf clover, thinking it would give them victory, and it didn't. Saul's kind of doing those types of things. I mean, okay, it gets worse. The drama goes on. It's just Dramaville here. Let's see. Let's go. Let me explore a little bit more with you. And Samuel said to Saul, so it goes on. Samuel says to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I... I have, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them in the way which they came to Egypt. This is referring to Exodus 17. When they were leaving Egypt, trying to get into the promised land, um, the Amalekites, in a very cowardice way, when the people were suffering, they were hungry, they were in the desert, they were wandering, not when they were strong, but in a very sucker-punchy, kind of a not-honorable um, way, they flank and attack Israel, and God does not forget it. Here we are um, generations later and God says, I've, I've noted this and now we're going to kick the snot out of them. Good thing. So I want you to go and Saul, this is your task. Strike Amalek, devote to destruction all that they have. Don't spare them. Kill both man, women, child, infant, ox, sheep. Come, like wipe them out. I want them done. I don't want Amalek to, to survive this. So Saul says, okay, fine. I'll do this. Mission accepted. So he gets all, he, he amasses all the people and he goes down and kicks their butts, uh, creates this incredible victory. And so, uh, so it says, and Saul defeated the Amalekites from, Hav- uh, from Havilah to uh, as far as Shur, which is, which is east, of, right to the east, to the border of Egypt. I mean, he just kicks the snot out of these guys. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to the destruction of the people with the edge of the sword. So Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the oxen and the fattened calf and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. And the word of the Lord came to Samuel. Uh-oh, God, re- now, God now regrets having made Saul his king. Why? Because he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. He's not a man after my own heart. He's not trusting me anymore. He's not, this is, we're in chapter 15, verse 10. He's not trusting me anymore. He's not trusting Samuel anymore. And Samuel gets angry. He cries out to the Lord, look, all night. He's just in torment over this. By the way, Samuel, when he anointed Saul, you know what he called him? Son. Called him his son. The same way Eli, perhaps, was like a father figure to Samuel. Saul is like a son, is like a son to Samuel. So he's, he's torn up over this. And he prays all night. And Samuel was angry. He prays all night into the morning. And he told Samuel, uh, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel. And behold, he's setting a monument for himself and turned and passed on. He went to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul. And look, look, at, look at Saul's response. Blessed be you of the Lord, brother. I've performed the commandment of God. Christianese. Praise God, hallelujah, I'm doing fine. Blessed are you of the Lord. This is so great. I've performed. And Samuel says this is proof that, this is proof that some sarcasm is biblical. Uh, Samuel says, what then is this bleeding of the sheep that I hear in my ears? And the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, here we go. Um, Look at here's here we go. They have brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep for oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. What do we got? Denial, blame shifting, spiritualizing. I yeah, we did it. Well, actually they did it, but it was for God. It was for the Lord. We're sacrificing for him. And the rest, we, the rest we devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said, stop. Stop. Stop with all this. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And, and he said to him, 
Well, okay, fine. Let's have it speak. And Samuel said, Though you are, you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the, the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then do you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why do you pronounce the, the, on the spoil and do what, it, what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And when Saul said this, what did he say? What's he say? He argues, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. Denial. I have gone on the mission in which the Lord sent me. I've brought Agag the king of, of, of Amalek. I have devoted to the, uh, the, the Amalekites to destruction. But the, people, but the people took the spoil, the sheep and the oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God. He says, look, I did this. And Samuel said, has not the Lord, uh, has the Lord... Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Some of your translations say it is better to obey than to sacrifice, right? Behold, to obey is better than the sacrifice and to listen, uh, and to listen than, than the fat of rams. In other words, do what God tells you. That's better than the rituals. That's better than the ceremonies. That's better than the outward fluff of sacrifice and all of those things. Live a life of obedience. Why? Because you're a man after God's own heart. That's what it's going for here. You're a man after God's own heart. If you were a man after God's own heart, you'd be devoted to him and to his heart and you trust him. But there's something in you, Saul, that says, I, that, you, that says, you still know better. There's something in you that says, yeah, but. Yeah, I'll do it, but this part, I'm, I feel justified in, in fudging the rules a little bit. I'm going to trust my own judgment. And he says, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he is, oh gosh, tough words, look at this, from a father figure. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, the Lord has rejected you from being king. And look at the drama involved. Um, so, of course, Saul, now he's, now he's sorry. I've sinned. I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord. Help me. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. In other words, do this in front of the people. Show that you accept me in front of the people. This is all about good PR. And Samuel said, I will not return with you. Uh-uh, I'm not doing it. For you've rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. Now look at this. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel, like lightning, turns around and says to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you. He uses that as a real-time metaphor. You can just picture it, can't you? Samuel turns away. Don't go. Shh! And he looks and says, the Lord has torn the kingdom of God from you. Woo! And look at, even worse, and he's giving it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. He's giving it to someone who is better than you. Now, um, what was the big deal about Saul's sin? I mean, you want to talk about sins, right? David in 2 Samuel 11, blows Saul's sins out of the water. <laughs> I mean, David, David, uh, if, you, if you were to compare Saul and David in terms of sin, David's sins are much, much worse. We're talking about I, just the one in Samuel, 2 Samuel 11, adultery, murder, this cover-up scandal, this whole horrible, horrible, horrible thing. But even before David became king, he committed some atrocities, um, on going on these raids, killing weak people, um, looting their stuff. I mean, he, he was really, uh, he, he did some horrible things. By far, David's sin outweighs uh, Saul's sin. Well, what's the difference? Well, let, let's, uh, here's what I'm going to pawn off on you here. Let's go to Let's go to 2 Samuel 12. This huge 11 is the story of his, of his horrible sin with Bathsheba, killing of, of her husband, all of those things. When Nathan comes, you guys know the story. The Lord sent Nathan to David and he came to him and he said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man 
had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had brought, and he brought it up, and it grew with him and his children, and it used to eat his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him, this lamb. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come up to him, and David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he, will, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and, and because he had no pity. And here it is. And Nathan said, You are the man. Whew. Thus says the Lord, God of Israel, I anointed you. Oops. I anointed you king. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of, the, uh, 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 of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would have given you much more. I had so much for you. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? Same accusation that Samuel gave to Saul. Why have you despised God's command? To do what is evil in his sight. You have, struck, you have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your own. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house and on and on it goes. Look at um, For you did it secretly and David said to Nathan, here it is. Uh, if I can do it, this thing is so hard to do. I have sinned against the Lord. Samuel said the same thing to Saul, remember? He said, God was, he, though you're little in your own eyes, God anointed you over the, the nation of Israel. He gave you this task to do. He was going to make you great. Why have you done this? What did Saul do? Well, they, denial, uh, I had to, we did it for a good cause. The, the end justifies the means. We did it for a good cause. What did David do? I have sinned against the Lord. Two words in Hebrew, you guys. Two words in Hebrews. In Hebrew. Uh, Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 give a much more detailed level of his hurt and despair over his sin. But nevertheless, the first confession that we have is two words in Hebrew. He just comes clean with it. Here's what I want to pawn off on you. This is the difference, I think, between David and Saul. What do I mean by that? Coming clean and just saying, well, no. I want to say there's a reason why Saul could not come clean and confess like this. And there's a reason why David could. And God tells us that reason. He says, it's because David is a man after my own heart. In other words, David trusts me he trusts me even with his failure even with his sin even though my, even though it's ugly and it's gruesome and it's bad and it's dark arguably darker than Saul's but Saul could not trust God he couldn't just come clean with it. He had to blame and justify and everything else, magical thinking. All of that happened. Why? Because he didn't know the heart of Yahweh. He didn't know the heart of God. David does. He can come to God with his sin. The rise of Saul was because of the grace of God. The fall of Saul was because he did not trust God. Here's my, I think here's the application. Every one of us in here are dealing with sin. Every single person in this room, every human being, you all have sin in your life. Every person, me included, dark stuff. Every single person. What counts is, do you trust Yahweh with it? Can you confess? See, a lot of times we just focus on the external. Confess your sins. But... Why can you confess your sins? Because he's faithful and just to forgive. Good job, Kristen. He's faithful and just. That's 1 John 1, 9, right? 
Oh gosh, of course. One, nine. For if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. But if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. In other words, we don't trust him. We're making him to be a liar. I get to decide what's right and wrong. I get to decide how much I obey and not. Saul was saying, I will obey until I don't think I should. I will obey as long as it makes sense to me. I will obey if I agree with it. I will obey if, if it's practical. I will obey. But as soon as something else comes along that's obviously more wise then I'm going to switch course. I have no problem calling an audible on God's commandments. David trusted God and obeyed. What is, the, what is the entire crux of salvation in the New Testament? It's faith. It is impossible, the New Testament says, to please God without faith. Pistis is the Greek word for that. Have faith. That's a verb that means be devoted to God because of who you know who he is. It's a, it's a word that means allegiance. It can mean, there's a whole, it's a, actually a lot of controversy over what English word is the best word for the, to, to translate the word pistis. Faith may not be the best. I personally think the word trust is a better translation for the word pistis. You cannot please God without trusting him. And parked right next to the word trust is the idea of devotion. You devote yourself to someone that you can trust. Regardless if you understand what they're doing or not, you trust a person. And with that, we move into the arena of love, relationships, love. A relationship without trust is a damaged relationship, right? You love somebody freely the more you trust that person. You know, all of, uh, there's so many rom-coms or, or uh, movies where the hero says to the damsel in distress, trust me. If you want to live, do what I say. Oh, okay. And she, you know, I trust you. It's silly, but the idea is trust and love go together. Trust and love go together. It takes a lot of vulnerability. It takes a lot of trust to confess your sins, to to, to own it, to just own it, to come before God and say two words in the Hebrew language, I have sinned before the Lord, period. And I know he can deal with it. What was the next thing that... Nathan said to him, I'll just, the next thing that he said, right out of Nathan's mouth, David said, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said, and the Lord has put away your sin from you. He's, He's forgiven you. Right away. Don't you, what would have happened if Saul would have done that? But Saul was, no, it wasn't me, it was them. We did it for a right reason. I did obey the voice of the Lord, he argues with Samuel, but I did. But you didn't. Why are you denying this? Because you can't trust. In my line of work, I deal with people's confessions all the time. People come to the pastor to confess their sins, and that's a privilege and a joy that I have. I I always find that that those who can do this, I don't gauge on the heinousness of their sin or, or, or the frequency of their sin or those types of things, it's someone that can come clean and just say, yeah, I did it. I sinned against God. Because they trust in his forgiveness. They know that he loves them still. As Kristen said, if I confess, I know he'll forgive me and cleanse me from unrighteousness. And this gives us a real interesting paradigm for Christian growth. So here's what we're going to start with. We all have sin. Every single person in here has sin. Christian growth depends on how, does not, Christian growth does not necessarily meet only with the metric of how frequently you sin or how bad your sins are or how, um, how less and less frequent they're becoming. That might be part of it. 
But real Christian growth is measured by how quickly you get to the cross. Christians sin, but everybody sins. Christians confess because they trust Yahweh. That's the difference. Everybody sins. Every single person in this world is dealing with sin. Christians can confess it and be honest. We're going back now to the Garden of Eden, naked and unashamed before God. I can come before him as I am, not as I should be, but as I am and say, this is me. Here I am and I trust you with me. The good, the bad, the ugly, I trust you with me. Um, so that's one thing now so let me stop there and just say so here's what I urge you to do I'm not going to urge you to confess your sins today I'm going to urge you to trust God today because that's the whole thing to the degree that you trust God's love for you and the completeness and the perfection of this sacrifice on the cross, to the degree you will confess your sins. You'll come before the Father and you'll say, it was, yeah, it was me. Yes, there were all these other circumstances. Yes, I was triggered. Yes, all of these things. I was anxious. But you know what? None of those things give me an excuse. At the end of the day, I chose to do it. Yes, someone else inflicted wounds on me. Yes, all of these things are still there. It's true. The Amalekites were around me. The Philistines were there. The people were getting nerd. Yes, but you know what, Samuel? At the end of the day, I did it. I just, I just, I, I didn't trust God and I gave up and I sinned. To the degree that you can trust the sacrifice of Jesus, to that degree you'll grow in confession and cleansing to know that he will cleanse you from this sin by dealing with it. Christians deal with the ugly in their lives. Now listen, I want to flip this coin over. To the degree that you, because this is, there's no condemnation here. I hope you sense this. I'm not condemning you. I'm shining a light on you. To the degree that you, that you have denial. To the degree that you blame shift to the degree that you make excuses and spiritualize, to that degree, you are not trusting God. Now, that's not a condemning statement. That's to, that's to put a seed in your mind so you will say, why? What is it? That you could even bring that to God. Here's what I hope would happen. I hope that you would come to the Lord and say, Lord, I don't trust you. That you'd start with that. Lord, I don't trust you. I'm scared of you. I'm scared you're going to take things from me that I think I need. I'm scared you're going to leave me hanging. I'm scared I'm going to be lonely for the rest of my life. I'm scared that I'm not going to be provided for. I'm scared that I, I won't have connection. I'm scared of all these things. And I don't really think that behind every sin is a lack of trust that God is going to provide. Every sin, everything you're tempted for, um, is promising you something. Think of it. Whatever you struggle with, what is it promising you? And when you, the moment you give in to that sin, what are you saying? God will not fulfill this for me. I have a genuine need that God no longer is going to fulfill. I've got to take matters into my own hands and now go do this instead. It might be a fraction of a second in your mind, but that no, make no mistake about it, that moment has come. Behind every sin is a lack of trust, and behind every lack, and that will reveal itself behind a lack of true confession. Yeah, but. I'm not highlighting, again, i got to say this, I'm not condemning you if you don't trust God. I'm saying that's a great, honest place to start. Can you trust him today with coming to him and saying, God, I have a problem trusting you? I do this thing because I don't think you're going to supply this need for me. I do this, this other thing because I don't think that you're going you're to come through. I'm lonely and I don't think you see it. 
I don't think you care. It's a great place to start. Because the problem isn't confess or not confess. The problem is trust or not to trust. Did, am, I, are we, am, I, am I beating this dead horse enough yet? Okay, secondly, last thing. And this is the part that, if you're not uncomfortable already, buckle your seatbelt because you're going to be, this is the next thing. Confession in the Bible. Um, the idea of an individual confession, a private confession between God and yourself is an alien foreign concept in the Bible. Most of the time in the Bible, confession deals with a community, another person, someone else that you can go, that you can go to and you can trust and you can say, I have sinned. The Bible says this, confess your sins to one another because in the New Testament, who are the priests? Who are the, who are the prophets and the priests? Who are the, the Sauls and the Samuels? Let's just say everybody, every, every Christian, every Christian is a priest, that's Peter, we're a, we're a kingdom of priests, you're all pastors in a sense, whether you, you know, you may not have a degree in it, you may not be formally trained, but according to the Bible, you all, we all minister to each other, it's not one guy that ministers to a group of 20 people. It is a group of us ministering to each other. And the Bible says, because of that, confess your sins one to another so that you can be deeply embarrassed and ashamed. No. It says, so that you will be healed. Healed. There, I think there is sacramental power in confessing our sins to one another. I experienced it uh, well, the first time I can remember, I was at this men's Bible study thing, and we all, there was a moment where we all could confess or come clean with something, and I felt the Holy Spirit stirring in me to stand up in front of these, this group of men that I barely knew and confess something that I was struggling with in that moment. And you know, if you've ever been in that kind of a position, or if you can just imagine, it, it's, not a, it's not fun, not comfortable to think that way. But I did it. I stood up. I remember I kept my eyes closed because it's easier that way. And I said, hi, my, for those of you who don't know me, my name's Mike, and this is what I'm struggling with. And I'm really ashamed of it. And I, I can't seem to get victory over this part of my life. And I, I'm just really frustrated with this whole thing. And on and on and on I went. And I remember, you know, you know, I'm just feeling naked in front of the world. And some other guys went up and did the same thing. And then it was snack time. They had like chips and salsa. So I remember I trembling went and got my, my plate and put chips and salsa. And I sat on a table next to And I remember this, this old older man, probably in his 70s, he looks, I didn't even know who he was. He looks over at me and he puts his hand on my shoulder and he looks at me and he goes, just simple words, he said, I'm not ashamed of you. And that was it. And he kept eating his chips. And I'll tell you what, something spiritual happened to me in that moment. I felt clean. Another eyes Come to find out through the body of Christ, it was Jesus' eyes said, I see you to the bottom and I still love you to the sky. I see everything dirty and, na- and more than you shared. I see it all and it doesn't even affect me at all. In um, Matthew McConaughey's uh, autobiography, Green Lights, he tells a similar story. You know, Matthew McConaughey is a guy, I don't, know, I'm not, I don't know if he's a Christian or not, but he goes on these spiritual journeys he goes on these walkabouts, and he'll just disappear. Um, in his kind of Hollywood uh, bad boy time period, he was just sick of his own self. And he disappeared into this desert, and he goes to a monastery. And he finds this old monk. And it's just an incredible part of, his, of this book. And they go out, and they sit on this rock, and he said for four hours, he just confessed it, it, he said it was like just puking, just this junk 
just coming out of him. I did this and I did this. And he said he was just sobbing, just a complete outpouring of who he is. He did this and did this and this. Finally, after hours had gone by, he said that in his book, he says, I realized that this guy had not said a thing. He just listened the whole time. And finally, McConaughey opens his eyes and looks at him. And the priest has got tears in his eyes. And McConaughey just kind of motions to him like, do you want to say something? Like, you know, now's the time. And the priest looks at him and says, me too. And he said those two words, me too. Even though he had not done all those things that Matthew, but he was saying, I'm human too. I've got that same stuff. He records something spiritual and cleansing happened to him in that moment, like a baptizing of what we would call like a baptizing of the Holy Spirit, a complete and utter changing and cleansing of who he is through confession. It is a beautiful thing that we can come to each other and say. Now, last remaining moments here's what we've got here's the work we've got to do guys to become a community like that because i'll just be frank we're not there some of you might be there we might have pockets of it here and there which is great but we're not there here's what the work we've got to do we've got to become people who are safe to tell things to what does that mean well it means uh if you've read harry potter um jk rawlings has this incredible um characters uh, part of the wizard community that have a very 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 special gift in the wizard community actually ends up saving harry's life they're called secret keepers there's someone that you can tell something to and it's so guaranteed that they're not going to tell that your that your life is protected they're, they are actually a form of safety because their their lips are so sealed that you're safe there's no way I'm going to come to you if I know that my stuff's going to be, make it around to people who I haven't agreed to tell. You're not a safe person. We've got to be secret keepers. We've got to be people who can hold it, who can be safe, who can say, I don't judge you. I'm not ashamed of you. God still loves you. I, I see everything, and yet I'm not phased by this. And, the, and if I'm not phased by this, neither is God. And your secret's safe with me. It's not my story to tell. It's your story. Thank you for letting me in on it. I can hold it for you. I can hold this. Right? That's got to happen. But it's also got to be someone um, who, will not, who will not offer advice unless it's asked for. This is, Nicole has taught me this. Ask. Do you want me just to listen or are you asking for advice? That's a great question. Are you asking me just to listen or, are you, or would you like some advice? Because sometimes Nicole wants to tell me just something that's on her heart and she doesn't want me to say anything to her. She just wants me to listen. She just wants me to be a safe person. I'm her husband. I should be the safest person on the planet for her to come and just say something to Without, me, without her feeling like she's going to be fixed. Other times she'll say, no, I would, I would love to hear some, what should I do in this situation? It's respectful to the other person to say, hey, look, what do you want from me here? Okay, what do you want from me here? And also, when they do ask for it, because um, a lot of times you guys, people, people will come to you and they already know what they're doing is wrong. You do not have to say that. <laughs> if someone comes and confesses a sin to you and you say, you know, well, that's really bad. <laughs> they know that already, right? They're coming to, say, they're coming to confess that already. But uh, sometimes there's a, there's, a, there's a time for Matthew 18 for you, if you see sin in someone's life, you love them enough to go privately confront them about it. But you're still keeping it between you and the, them. You're safe. And you want their, you want their health. That's what we're after. Are you a safe person? Are you someone that someone can go and tell you certain things? And final piece of advice, you're never going to feel completely comfortable to tell anybody anything. Even, the safe, even if the, the most safe person in the world is next to you, you're probably still going to feel uncomfortable. Do it. 
do it. I'm here. You can always come to me. Uh, the elder board, well, everybody should be to this place. But we all are committed as a community to being safe people so we can be a confess- confessing community and we lead each other to the cross. We lead each other to the cross. So here's what I want to do in, conclu- in conclusion. The communion table, table is open. Does somebody want to come get this computer? Um, I'm, I'm done with it. The communion table is open, but here's what I want to challenge you. Is there someone here that you can confess to before you come up? Would you take some, a moment to talk to somebody around you? I mean, it doesn't have to be this long, detailed thing. It can just be, I mean, really, it could, honestly, if it's genuine and heartfelt, it could be, I've sinned against the Lord. It can be that vague. I've sinned against the Lord, and I just want you to know I'm taking full responsibility for it. You can keep it. You don't have to name it if that's more comfortable. Maybe for some of you, the Spirit is saying, no, you need to get a little bit more specific. If there's things in your life, you know, I I would recommend uh, men pair up with men, women pair up with women. If it's those, you you can use your own discernment. You You know how that works. But, and this is not required. You can, of course, you can come up and confess between you and Jesus. Of course, that's fine. But every single one of you in here has sin in your life. That's just a theological fact. It's not that I'm speaking prophetically. I just read the Bible and it's there. You have something. And then wouldn't it be beautiful if you came up hand in hand together? In other words, I'm le- we're leading each other to the cross. I've, someone has heard it, heard it. They've seen it. And they're leading me up here. I'm leading them up here. And, and that way we wash each other's feet. 